Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 99. Psalm 99. Let's read God's word. The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and He is above all the people. Let them praise Thy great and terrible name, for He, for it is holy. The King's strength also loveth judgment. Thou dost establish equity. Thou executest judgment and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt ye the Lord our God, and worship at His footstool, for He is holy. Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among them that call upon his name. They call upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spake unto them in the cloudy, in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance that, that he gave them. Thou answerest them, O Lord our God. Thou wast a God that forgavest them though thou tookest vengeance of their inventions. Exalt the Lord our God, and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. So far, the reading of his holy and infallible word. Let us... So our sermon text this morning comes from Psalm 99, as we read. And a key question that we must ask is, who do we worship? Who is the Lord our God who we worship? The Psalms deals with the worship of God. The Psalter, in fact, is the very paradigm of worship, as we saw previous times. And that is in this Psalm that the nature of the Lord is unfolded to us. Very seldom the book of Psalms it speaks of other people such as Moses, Aaron, Samuel, or David even. Because the center, the very center of the Psalter is God himself. And the reason is because worship is God-centered. So if worship is God-centered and the Psalter is our paradigm of worship, it's natural that the whole book of Psalms is going to deal with who is the God that we worship. And that is the case of this psalm that is before us. This psalm is placed within a sequence of psalms about the Lord's enthronement and kingship, how He is king over all things. There is great refrain that appears in the, at the opening of this psalm, the Lord reigns is repeated over and over throughout the whole Psalter, and particularly in this Psalms that deals with his kingship, such as Psalm 93, 97, and 99, as we will see the connection between these three Psalms. As the psalmist meditates on the sovereign king, his majesty guides us to worship him. The Lord is the only one who deserves to be praised, by virtue of who he is. That is, he intrinsically deserves to be praised. 
He is the only one who deserves to be praised. And he is the only one who, by the nature of who he is, by his character, he deserves to be praised. Not simply by what he has done, but what, who he is, by whom he is, by his very nature, he deserves to be praised. In other words, we'll see how the reality of who God is compels us to worship him. This is an enthronement psalm, and it is a description of God's sovereign reign over all things, all the peoples, all the nations. And to meditate on this psalm, we will do so under two headings. First, we will see how the Lord is a sovereign king, from verses 1 to 5. And then we'll see how the Lord is also a personal God, from verses 6 to 9. This psalm brings us into the expectation for the coming of the kingdom, that on the one hand is already here, but on the other hand, it's not fully yet. It's already inaugurated. We can already taste. Christ has already come and has already conquered all things, but it's not fully yet. So in this psalm, we have a taste of that reality. He's reigning sovereignly over all the world, and yet he's a personal and relational God who comes near to his people. He is holy and just, and yet in him there is forgiveness. All that is in God calls us to worship him. So first let us see how the Lord is a sovereign king. Verse 1 and 2 invites us, as it says, The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. The Lord reigns. The Lord is a great and high king. The picture here is showing how the Lord is a great and high king, exalted over all things, all the universe. He is high above all the people. And the expected answer is to tremble and fear before such a great king. The Lord reigns. This truth is so powerful that it is repeated over and over throughout the Psalter. Over and over the Psalms it speaks of how the Lord reigns, how Christ is king, how he receives the crown, how he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord of hosts, who rules over the whole universe. This truth is that the Lord possesses absolute sovereignty. Is not only was reigning in the past, he not only was king to the Old Testament Israelites, or he not only was king as Jesus walked on this earth, but he is the king. He not only will be a king one day in the future eschaton when Christ comes in glory. No, he is king from eternity past to eternity future. Jesus Christ is king. The Lord reigns above all peoples, yesterday, today, and forever. This majestic vision of the Lord and throne can only bring us to worship him. The reality that God reigns can only bring us to worship him. The reality that who he is is so powerful, so overwhelming, so majestic that can only bring us to our knees before him. A.W. Pink, meditating on God and the reality of who he is, say this, 
Our first postulate is this, that because God is God, He does as He pleases, only as He pleases, always as He pleases, that His great concern is the accomplishment of His own pleasure and the promotion of His own glory, that He is the supreme being and therefore sovereign of the universe. The Lord reigns. That means that He does as He pleases, when He pleases, how He pleases. The Lord reigns over all people. That is the very first statement upon which Christianity is built upon. The Lord reigns. He is a sovereign God. He is sovereign over all people. He is sovereign over the whole universe, over the destiny of all peoples, of all nations. The Lord reigns, period. He not only reigns over a particular people, He not only reigns over His people, but the Lord reigns, period. Yesterday, today, and forever, over all. The Lord possesses absolute authority, and He does what He pleases, as He pleases. And this reality that He reigns ought to bring us, first of all, security and peace. The reality that our God reigns over all things, that He is the supreme King, ought to bring us a comfort that nothing else can bring, a peace that nothing else can give. Do you know that our God is seated upon the throne? Doesn't matter what happens, He is seated. The King is seated on Zion. The Lord reigns. The peace of, to rest, knowing that nothing escapes His reign. He not only reigns, but He is high above all people. You see, the Lord is exalted above all people. He is exalted above the President of the United States of America. He is exalted above, above the powers of China, of Russia. He is exalted above all. He is even exalted above evil. He is exalted above Satan. He is above, uh, exalted above the powers of darkness. He is exalted above death itself. The Lord reigns, period. Nothing escapes His dominion. Nothing escapes His rule over all. The Lord reigns. Nothing will bring such a peace. Don't you know that we worship a God who reigns? We worship a God who is king. Nothing escapes his dominion. Not even death. Not the powers of our days and times. As we saw in Psalm 2, the kings of this world can only cause him to laugh. The Lord reigns. Who holds our destiny is not the rulers of our times who hold our destinies is the Lord who reigns. But this also brings trembling. The Lord sits reigning on His throne above the cherubim like a point of connection between heaven and earth. He sits there in throne and He reigns. He is the very link of connection between heaven and earth. And before such overwhelming majesty, all inhabitants should respond with trembling and wonder. 
His glory and power are so overwhelming that all people ought to come in fear before Him, trembling. Even the earth is moved by His presence. Even the hills melt before Him. All the peoples ought to come in trembling before the King. The Lord reigns. This ought to bring peace to His people and trembling to all people as well. But even though the Lord is supreme ruler over the whole universe, the almighty king, the psalmist does not suggest that his rule is oppressive or is something to be rejected or is something that is so imposed that we are oppressed under him, that we should fight against. But he knows that God reigns and God is good. The psalmist know that He is the supreme Lord and He is good. Those who submit to the Lord are called to praise Him. Are called to praise Him. Not to try to break His bonds and chains. No, but to praise Him. To praise Him. His rule is a wonderful rule. My yoke is easy, as the Lord Jesus says. So we come to Him and we praise Him. This is an invitation not only to Israel, but to all people to praise the King of Kings, to praise His name that is great and fearsome. His name is terrible. His name provokes fear because He's so great, high above all the earth. So we come and we must worship Him, not rebel against Him, but worship Him. And those, though the psalmist does not experience this, this yet, does the psalm, though the psalmist does not experience the reality of the majesty of the Lord filling all the, the earth and all people coming to worship Him, he knows. He knows that one day, all the earth will experience this reality. One day, the whole world will experience the majesty of the Lord as King. He knows that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. You see, the Lord reigns. And one day, one day everything will submit to God, one way or the other. One day He will submit all unto Him. Every knee shall bow before the King. Though many people live in rebellion nowadays, the Lord reigns, and nothing will fail to glorify Him at the end. And the response that is required is praise. Precisely because what is said at the end of the verse, He is holy. The end of verse 3, the end of verse 5, He is holy. The Lord is is holy, and there is no other like Him. You see, His holiness sets Him apart, the whole creation. He is holy, nothing else. None else, no one else is like Him, for He is holy, and everything in Him is holy. His name is holy, He is holy. The place that He is is holy, His word is holy. The Lord is holy. There is none other 
like him. His very holiness is precisely the reason because we ought to come before him in trembling and worshiping him. This is the reason, because he is holy. holy. And the psalmist gives more information about the Lord in verse 4, telling that the Lord loves justice. The Lord loves justice. He is just, and He executes justice. And He is also the judge over all things. You see, the Lord is the one who established justice. He is the one who gives the law. And He is the one who executes justice as well. The Lord reigns. He established the rules. He executes the law. The Lord Reigns and he is holy. But notice first how there is a change from the third to the second person here in verse 4. Verse 2 refers to the Lord and the third person speaking about the Lord and what has done. But now the psalmist is speaking directly to the Lord, directly to him. Thou have established equity, thou have executed justice. In this psalm, the psalmist is changing between the second and third person. That is, from speaking to the congregation to speaking directly to the Lord. So this psalm is at the same time a hymn, a hymn that is sang by the people, and at the same time a prayer that the psalmist is directing directly to the Lord himself. He is giving this as a hymn for us to sing, as a prayer for us to pray. At the same time that he is speaking to the Lord, he is speaking to us today. The Lord reigns. In the same reaction that he gives of worshiping the Lord, he expects that we will do today as well. The Lord reigns. And he is just. No one can complain of injustice to the Lord. No one can say that his rule is injustice, that he is an injustice king. For he not only loves judgment, but he is also the one who established equity. He is the creator of justice, the establisher of morality, the foundation of what is right and wrong. There is no superior, superior moral for anyone to compare than God himself. He is holy. There is no place that we can go seeking justice but God himself. He is the very foundation of morality. Not only for our society, but for everyone. All the time, the Lord establishes equity. He is justice. That is who he is. He is the foundation of morality, of justice. There is no crookedness in him. There is no flaw in him. There is no sin, no, not a single spot of sin whatsoever in him. If he was not holy, he could not be king over all as well. It's because he is holy, holy, holy. And he is also the judge and the king over all. That separates him apart from the rest of creation. 
He is holy. The Lord reigns. There is no other like Him. The Lord not only upholds His reign in Zion, but He also rules over His people as well. So He is not only present in Zion, but He also establishes justice and equity upon His community. Verse 4, from Jacob, that is Israel, from Jacob, the whole Israel, the whole Israelite community was established. And the Lord executes His authority both over Egypt and Canaan. The Lord expresses His holiness through the law given to Israel. You see, because the Lord is holy, His law is also holy. Because the Lord is perfect, His law is also perfect. And He shows His holiness. He shows His morality, His equity, His justice by giving a perfect law to His people, to His community. It's not without reason that we read His law. This is not a law given to the Old Testament people. Oh, this is how they lived in the Old Testament times. No. He is perfect, and the law that He gives is also perfect and eternal as well. He shows His holiness by giving a perfect law. The Lord does not rule in a democracy. You see, heaven is not a democracy. People don't get a vote to decide anything. There is no election in heaven to decide who will rule next or who will establish the law. No. The Lord reigns, period. The Lord reigns, period. There is no democracy about His reign. He is sovereign over all. He is the only one who is holy, holy, holy. And there is no other who could ever rule over all. Because only Him is holy. How can we come before Him and mock His law? How can we come before Him and want to break free from His law? He didn't give an option. He gave a perfect law to His community because He is the King. He is the one who established this, His law. Who could ever be more qualified than Himself to give the law? We have a perfect law because we have a perfect King. He is Holy, the Lord reigns. Then God's righteousness prompts His people to worship Him. All the people are called to exalt the Lord. Verse 5. Exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at His footstool, for He is holy. Upon this reality of a holy and just God, all that we can do is worship is come before Him and exalt Him. The Lord is a sovereign King. And the psalmist then comes to the conclusion, Oh, He is the sovereign King over all. What else can I do? Oh, one thing I can do. I can praise Him. I can exalt my King. I can praise and worship my King of kings and my Lord of lords. He comes to the only possible conclusion that before a holy God, the only thing we can do is to bow down and worship Him. 
And the Ark of the Covenant represents God's throne. We remember how in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant would symbolize a throne in which God was seated. The same language that is used in verse 1. And the base of the Ark is spoken as His footstool. This language is used in other places of scriptures, denoting the complete subjugation of God's enemy, as all his enemies are placed under his feet, before his feet. And in the same way, we come before his feet to worship and exalt him. Exalt and worship. Notice, exalt and worship. Verse 5, they are both Commands, they're both imperatives for us to do. Exalt and worship Him. Worship here is, means to bow down, to bow down, to come before Him and to go low, to bow down before Him in worship, to put our face on the ground in submission to the King. And this creates a, a contrast. Whereas in the one hand, the Lord is being exalted as He is high above all the people. And we are exalting Him even more. We come in worship and we bow down. We bow down before the King. That's the reality of worshiping the Lord of Lords, the supreme and sovereign King. Oh, we come Lo, we bow down before him at his feet, and we worship the king. As it says in John 3, 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. We don't come to church to think higher of ourselves. Perhaps many ought to come to church to think lower of ourselves many times. No, we, think, we come to church to contemplate the reality of how high our king is. Just to, not to think higher of ourselves, but to contemplate the king, to contemplate who he is and how little we are and how we depend on him for everything. The A. Carson comment on the life of the Apostle Paul, and he said, while most of... Uh, while most of us go through life afraid that people will think too little of us. One cannot help but notice that Paul goes through life afraid that people will think too much of him. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 6, Paul says, For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth me of me. You see, how much time do we, do we waste wanting that people, oh, they are thinking too little about me. Oh, I, I just wish that they would know me better. They would realize better how good I am and how great I am. How foolish. You see what the Apostle Paul himself says. He went through life afraid that people would think too much of him. That is the reality of coming before so great of a God. We don't want people to think 
more about us. No, we want them to think more about God, about His glory, to contemplate how great He is. Let they come before Him and say, Oh God, how great Thou art, not how great I am. This would be a waste of time. If after our conversation, people go, go away thinking, Oh, how wise this man is. How wise he is. This would have been a waste of time. Let they see how great God is. How wonderful He is. How great of a king we have. That is the reality. The Lord reigns. Let the eyes of the world be lifted up to Him. Be lifted up to the throne of God. Because only Him is holy. And only He deserves all the glory. Only He is worth to be praised. Verse 5 and 9 concludes this each section of contemplating the Lord and with this call to worship. To bow before Him before his footstool and before his holy mountain. But how could we approach a holy God? How could we approach this holy God? If he is so holy and so just, how could we approach him? As we fall short before the righteousness that he demands from us, the good news is that he provides a way out. He, speak, uh, he speaks about the ark of the covenant. You see, he speaks above the very way through which we have access to him. He speaks above the blood that is sprinkled and give us access to him. The Lord is holy, but he is also the Lord, our righteousness. He also gives the way in which we can approach a holy and great God. Our only answer is to exalt Him. He not only is God who demands all the praise, but He also provides a way to approach Him. That is because the Lord is not only a sovereign King, but He is also a personal God. The Lord not only is a sovereign King over all, but he is also a God who comes near, who is a personal God. Then we come to our second point. And verse 6 tells us that the Lord not only gave a just law, but he also gave mediators. He also gave those who would be mediators. The sacrificial system was established by the teaching of Moses and from the line of Aaron. That is, through the priest line of Aaron came the priest, the mediation, the Lord gave provision for our sins. He not only is a sovereign king, holy and just, but he also gave provision for our sins coming near to us, a way out from the judgment that we would deserve. Upon the request for mercy and grace from his people, the Lord provided a way for sins to be forgiven. These great men of prayer men that invoked the Lord and walked with the Lord, yet they were finite men. Even Moses, the great Moses, and Aram himself were finite men. Even then, 
even they were not holy and needed a way to approach the Lord. They needed forgiveness, as verse 8 tells us. As they cried to the Lord, He answered them. God he reveals His majesty and sovereign reign in answering their cry, in answering their prayers. Verse 6 tells first that the Lord answered. Then verse 8 explains how He answered by forgiving His people and doing justice over evil. Two inseparable truths. At the same time that the Lord our God is merciful and gracious, He is just and He brings judgment. He brings vengeance and chastisement. Two inseparable truths. And there is no fight between them. There is no animosity between them. They come together. You see someone asked Charles Spurgeon, someone asked him, how could justice and mercy be reconciled? And Charles Spurgeon answered, what do you mean being reconciled? Friends don't need to be reconciled. They were never apart from each other. They always came together. In the whole Scripture, these two realities of God's sovereignty and our responsibility, of His love and mercy and His justice, always came together. They don't need to be reconciled. They come always together. Wrath and mercy, as we saw in Habakkuk 3. And the example of these men show us that the proper answer before God's word is to keep his testimony, to obey him according to what he prescribed. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. We would all agree with that. And perhaps when we talk to people outside the church, many of them will agree to that as well. Oh yeah, I know God. He created the universe. Yes, sure, he reigns. But what does it mean in our lives? What does it mean in our private lives that the Lord reigns? Are we living in accordance to this reality? Does the Lord reigns over our lives? Or are we living like rebels before him? You see, it's simple to identify if we are living truly according to what we profess, or if we are living a false belief, just ask yourself, am I living in a different way privately as I do when I am in public? And I, am I living in a different way during the week as I do when I come to church in the Lord's day? The Lord reigns not only in the Sabbath day, though Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, but the Lord reigns every day of the week in everything that we do. He created the whole, all things. He created our hands. He created our eyes. He created our ears. He created our feet. And we will give account of how we use them. The Lord reigns. We should ask ourselves and make sure that we are living in accordance to this reality. This expression here in verses, verse 6, 
they called upon the Lord was not a one-time call. They didn't call the Lord once, simply, no. They were calling the Lord in a continuous action of their service, calling the Lord, praying to the Lord. They were calling the Lord continuously. They were calling the Lord, and He answered them. You see how there is no contradiction between God's sovereignty that we saw in the first half of this altar and now man's responsibility? The Lord reigns and He's sovereign over all. He decreed all things, and yet they were calling the Lord. They were begging Him, begging Him, storming the mercy seat, begging Him, praying to the Lord, and He answered them. This is the way by which the Lord Himself established to bless His people. We come before the throne of grace. We storm the mercy seat. We pray to Him, and He answers. He answers. G.I. Parker said, commenting on the reality of prayer, he said that there is no Armenian when we are on our knees. There is no Armenian theology when we are praying to the Lord on our knees. Because if we believed in an Armenian theology, we would stand up and go do it ourselves. But when we are on our knees, we are recognizing that the Lord reigns. That He is King. And we must pray to Him. We must ask Him for deliverance. We must ask for His blessing on our life. We must ask Him to free us from bondage. Because He is Lord over all. Do you want to identify if you are living in Armenian theology? Ask yourself how much you pray before doing something. Ask yourself how much you pray to the Lord for His blessing upon your work, upon your fight against sin, upon your fight against addiction, and whatever you do. Ask yourself how much you trust the Lord, that He is able and willing to deliver you. God is sovereign. And coming to Him and asking for grace is the greatest thing we can do. And oh, dear believer, verses 6 and 7 shows us that the Lord is present and answers. He's not only a God who created the whole universe, who created all things and is set upon Zion, but He's near, He's present, and He answers. He's not away and He doesn't care about us. No, He's near, He cares, and He answers he is a personal God who cares about every single one of us. He's near and He answers. Remember, He does as He pleases, only as He pleases, always as He pleases, when He pleases, however He pleases. But He hears and He answers. He always answers. If we had only a God high above, a just God, this would not be good news. Just this reality that the God is a sovereign king above all, holy and just, this would not yet be good news for us. It would be good, but not the good news of salvation. But He's also near. He also cares for His people. 
and he answers. Oh, how we must remember that in our private lives of prayer. How we must remember this reality when we pray for unconverted friends, for unconverted relatives, for unconverted people around us, when we pray for deliverance from trials and tribulations, when we pray for deliverance of our struggle against sin, of indwelling sin in our lives, how we must be remember of this reality. At first, that God is all-powerful, and yet He's near. He's near. He answers our prayers. Oh, what a beautiful assurance we have to rest on this reality. The Lord reigns, and the Lord answers them. He's high above, and yet He hears, and He answers. What a wonderful truth. The Lord answered them. There are things that can hold us in bondage can hold us in bondage, some indwelling sins that can hold us for a long time, and so often we feel discouraged, such as addictions that hold us and bondage us, and we become so discouraged. Augustine himself he struggled with this, and he said in his confessions, bound as I was, nothing with another man's irons, but by my own iron will, my will that the enemy held, and thence had made a chain for me and bound me. For a forward will was lust made. See the progression that he gives. And a lust served became custom, and custom not registered became necessity, by which links, as it were, Join together, as I call it a chain, a hard bondage held me captive. You see the reality of the bondage that we can struggle with addiction or indwelling sins of this reality? It's a bondage. So don't simply try by your own strength to be free from this bondage. Don't simply... Struggle and battle by yourselves. No. Recognize that the Lord reigns. And He answers. So come to Him and ask for deliverance. Come to Him for everything. Even for your fight against indwelling sin. Come to Him and ask, Oh Lord, I recognize that Thou art a holy and all-powerful God. And Thou art a God who reigns. So free me from my bondage, Lord. Oh, Lord, I want to praise Thee, and I want to be free from my chains. Deliver me, Lord. He is powerful to do. He is near and willing. Pray to Him, for the Lord answers. Then verse 8 tells us that He not only answers, but He is a God of forgiveness and justice. There are many reasons behind God's vengeance, judgment, chastisement of His people. Many reasons. Reasons according to His own sovereign will. But the point is that at the same time that He is holy and just, 
that God punishes and forgives. One thing cannot undermine the other. Otherwise, we would either fall into an unjust God or a merciless God. You see, if we undermine either one of these, we would either have a merciless God or an unjust God. And either one would not be able to save us. If either one of these were the truth, oh, we would be condemned. If he were just, just, he were just a holy God and just, we would perish. He would obliterate us, condemn us, destroy us, destroy the whole universe, the whole creation after the fall. If he was just a holy and just God, there would be no hope. But if, if he were just merciful and not holy, there would be no hope as well. Because we would have no hope that evil would be ever done. We would have no hope that evil one day would ever be no more. That he would put an end to evil, to sin, to death itself, to the power of darkness. We would have no hope of a better day. You see, we need both. We need a holy God, an all-powerful God, and we need a merciful God who comes near to us to have hope of salvation. He is all-powerful, and He is a God that forgives. In verse 9, then, comes to the apex of this reality, inviting us to exalt our holy God. The psalmist concludes by stating the reason why the Lord deserves all praise and devotion. For the Lord our God is holy. This reality separates God from all creation as we've seen. He is holy. This sets Him apart from everything that exists. And we began noticing how these three psalms, Psalm 93, 97, and 99... It speaks of the Lord's reign. And there is yet another connection between them. They not only speak about the Lord's reign, but they also speak of His holiness. They also speak of His holiness. Psalm 93 says, Holiness becameth thine house, O Lord, forever. Then Psalm 97, Give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. And finally, Psalm 99 says three times. Verse 3, it is holy. Verse 5, He is holy. And finally, verse 9, the Lord our God is holy. These three Psalms, they open with the reality. The Lord reigns. And they speak of His holiness through all the Psalms. See, there is something about His holiness. There is something about the reality that He is holy that connects to His reign. Something about His holiness that is tightly connected to His kingship. Isaiah chapter 6 gives a very similar picture 
of the one that we have in this psalm. The Lord seated in his throne. The Lord exalted high and enthroned. And the image of a sanctuary, just as we have here. A language that is followed by in this psalm. So let us quickly turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6. Let us read from verses 1 to 5. Isaiah 6, 1 to 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, that is Isaiah, saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, just as we have in this Psalm 99. And his train filled the temple. Above it stood, uh, stood the seraphims. The most, one of the most holy creatures, most powerful creatures in the universe. Each one of, had six wings. With wine, he covered his face. With wine, he covered his feet. And if wine, he did fly. You see, one of the most glorious creatures in the whole creation needed to cover their faces before God. Even them, as they fly over the Lord, they need to cover their faces before this holy, holy, holy God. And that is exactly what they say. Even these creatures have no sin. As they fly near the Lord, what they say in verse 3, And one cried out unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Not only once, but three times. He is holy. The whole earth is full of His glory. What called the attention of those angels as they fly over the Lord is precisely His holiness. Even having no sin, they cover their faces and they say, Oh, holy is the Lord. Oh, His glory fills the whole universe. And as Isaiah sees thee, what is his answer? Verse 5. Then I say, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Oh, and the prophet Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah, saw the same vision that we have here in Psalm 99, the great throne of God. Oh, he said, woe is me, for my eyes have seen his glory. What a powerful reality it is to be confronted with the glory of God, with his holiness. You see how we cannot come before Him in the same way that we were before. We cannot come to church and meet God, meet His holiness, and go away in the same way that we came. If we truly met God and His holiness, we cannot go away in the same way that we arrived. For He is holy, holy. Holy, my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. Again, there is something about His holiness. Psalm 99, and here in Isaiah chapter 6, that evokes His kingship. Something about His holiness that is so connected to the fact that He is King, that He is Lord, the Lord of holiness. In a way, there is no king like Him, and there is no holiness compared to Him. There is something about His holiness that demands Him to be king, and something about His kingship that demands Him to be praised. There is no holiness like Him, no kingship like His. And for this reason, He demands to be praised. All power and authority I derive from His power and authority. And all holiness is after His holiness. And the fact that He is holy demands us to worship Him. The only thing that we can do before Him is to praise. Is to praise and worship But I ask you, if the whole earth is already filled with His glory, if the whole universe is already covered with His glory, and the heavens and the earth testify of His name, of His majesty and glory, how can we glorify Him? If He is already exalted on high, seated on Zion, how can we exalt what is already exalted? How can we fulfill this reality? The answer is that we cannot make him higher than he already is. We cannot add a glory that he already doesn't, doesn't have. We cannot add nothing to him. But if we are called to recognize the glory that belongs to him. We are called to recognize how He is glorious and how He has all the glory. And we are called to invite all people to do the same. We are called to lift up His name before men, before those who mock Him, before those who who know not God and walk not with God. We are called to exalt His name in the midst of a falling world who know not Him. It pleased Him to use jars of clay like you and me to glorify Him. What a mystery that is. What a mystery that is when He's served by the seraphims, when He's served by the hosts of heaven. It pleased Him to use jars of clay, vessels like you and me, to bring glory to Him. It is a mystery that we cannot fully understand, but we can know that it is biblical and that it is a command. When I was a child, one year I asked my dad to give me some money to buy him a gift for his birthday. I was very young and I asked him, I was probably around six or seven years old, and I asked him money to buy him a gift for his birthday. And he gave me, and I bought him a, a chess set 
One of these more ornamental that is more for decoration than, than for playing. And I gave him that chess set. And recently I was meditating on, on what happened on that day. Two things came to my mind. First, that my dad doesn't play chess. But even so, he kept that chess set for more than 20 years. He doesn't even play that. He could, and the money was his. He could have bought something way better. But he kept the gift that I gave him for so long. I asked him money to buy him a gift. He could have bought something better. He could have bought something better for himself. But it pleased him. It pleased him to give me the means to buy him a gift. It pleased him to keep the gift that I gave. You see how it is the same thing with God the Father? Why? He chose jars of clay like you and me, fallen vessels, to glorify his name. It pleased him. It pleased the Lord. To use fallen people like you and me to exalt his name, to praise him. And now it pleased him to keep us before his throne and worship him with a perfect praise. Oh, what a wonderful reality that he is not only holy, but he is near to us. He cares for us and he loves his people. What a t- tremendous reality. It pleased the Lord to use jaws of clay. He created us. He created the whole universe. He even recreated us. He redeemed us in the redemption. And it still pleased Him to use us to give Him praise and glory. Why does the Lord command us to worship Him? Why does He command us to sing praises to Him and to worship Him, to come on the Sabbath day and to worship Him? It's not for the music quality. In Job, as Job is talking with the Lord, the Lord said to Job, Where was thou when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Oh, can you imagine that? The whole universe, the stars, the morning stars praising the Lord. And yet it pleased him to ask us to come here and praise him. It's not for the music quality. He could have a better choir for himself. But it pleased him to call us. He could have something far better to hear. He's not concerned that if in the worship service we all are in tune No, he's concerned that if in the worship servant we worship him in his spirit and in truth because it pleased him to do so. The best thing that God can give us is himself, is his glory. The best thing that we can give to him is obedience, is to love him, is to Praise and exalt Him with all of our heart and spirit and truth today 
and forevermore. Oh, the best thing that we can do is obedience to Him. You see, when we come to church, when we come to worship Him, we don't try to be innovators. Worship is not about being creative or bringing new things that will only please men. It's about pleasing Him. He could have something far greater. But what He demands from us is obedience. Exalt Him. Praise Him. Verse 5, All the people are called to worship at the Lord's footstool. And in verse 9, they are called to worship at His holy hill, showing that everything that there is in the Lord is holy. The Lord is holy. His name is holy. The hill in which He inhabits is holy. All that is in God is holy. He's holy, holy, holy. God is holy. And nothing but holiness can approach Him. Even in worship, nothing but holiness can approach Him. And perhaps now we are thinking, so how can we approach a holy God? How can we ascend the mountain of the Lord, to use the language of the psalmist? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 25. But ye are come unto Mount Zion. You see, in the worship service, we don't come to Sinai. We come to Zion itself. And unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. The general assembly, not only of believers from this age, but all the ages. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. This is the means by which we approach him. See that he refuse not him that he speaketh. For if they escape it not, who refuse him that he speaketh on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that he speaketh from heaven. During the worship service, we come before God. We come into His holy hill, into His presence, and it is only through Christ, through the holiness of Christ, that we can approach Him, that we can worship Him. Refuse not Him that He speaks. Bend the knee, bow down before Him, because we are coming into the presence of God Himself. And I would like to conclude by asking, Why exalt the Lord? And the psalmist summarizes, Because the Lord, because holy is the Lord, our God. Holy is the Lord, our God. Derek Kidner commented 
this. He is holy. He is also against all our deserving, not ashamed to be called ours. He's holy, judge of all. The Lord reigns, and yet he's not ashamed to be called ours. He's not ashamed to be called the Lord, our God. For him and through him are all things. He's not only a holy God, but he is our God. His justice, we receive his justice to escape his judgment. And that is what enables us to worship him forever and ever. If he, did the, he, if he did all things, what could we do except exalt and worship him so that the glory is given only to him? The reality is that who God is compels us to worship him. Who he is, holy, just, merciful, and near, compels us to worship him. You see, there is not, it is not enough to recognize that God is holy if you cannot recognize that he is also yours. Just to say that there is a God, it is not enough if you cannot call him yours. It's not enough to go to a church who worships the true God if the same God is not yours as well. Woe unto you, men of unclean lips. Woe unto us, if he is not our God. It is not enough to recognize that the Lord is God if you cannot call him mine, my God, my righteousness, my Savior. Just as it is not enough to recognize that he is righteousness if it is, if it is not your righteousness. You see, dear friend, the best thing that he can give us is his glory. The best thing that he can give us is himself. And the worst thing he could ever give us is to deny us his own glory. So call upon his name, for he answers, Come to him, for all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Amen. Amen. Let us pray to our God who is holy and near for he answers. Let us pray to the Lord. O God, our God, how majestic is thy name. How great and awesome and fearsome is thy name, O Lord. The whole earth is moved by thy glory, Lord, and we come before thee with trembling. But, O oh Lord, we come before thee filled with praise and thanksgiving because thou art not only a holy God, but a near God, a God who answers prayers, a God that forgives. So, O oh Lord, forgive our sins. Seeing us, not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. O oh Lord, let Jesus Christ be not only the King, but also our King. Let us come to Him and be able to call Him 
our Savior. Let us come before Thee, Lord, and be able to call Him our Father. O Lord, and as we meditate on how great Thou art, the only thing we can give Thee is praise and worship. So, O Lord, let us worship Thee today as we will worship Thee forever and ever. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.